Aloha and welcome to Thumbing Through Yesterday, the podcast where we take our favorite books down from the shelf, dust them off, and remind ourselves why we like them. My name's Tom Galley, and joining me today, we've got Tony Pasculi. Happy to be here. Our book today is one of my favorites, A Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. And I have to ask, well, okay, let me, let me not ask the usual question first. <laughs> let me ask this question. You read it again. Is it still one of your favorites? Absolutely. Okay. All right. Uh, so why is this a favorite book? You know, I simply love reading this book. And, you know, and of course, this time through, I know you're going to ask me the question. So I'm trying to think about, I'm trying to quantify <laughs> as I'm reading it, why do I love it so? Um, and there are just a number of things about the book. Um, the writing, the language is so, at times, so convoluted and grammatically poor that it's fun somehow. Um, and chapter three, I mean, don't even get me started on chapter three. It's it's just nothing but a conversation. And the, the further you get into the chapter, the shorter the segments of conversation get. And the more people, the more conversations you're jumping between. It's, it's, it's completely almost a nonlinear that was progression the, through that. That was a weird transition between... Uh, this is a very strange book. It is a very strange book. I, I haven't think read this part book of, since high school. Part yeah. of what I like about it. The characters are just so delightfully cookie cutter. <laughs> um, and in a way, it fits with the theme of the book. You know, you're talking about a society where where they bud people. You know, where, where they're born, born yeah. in clone batches of up to 96, I think. Um, identical so far, you're saying a bunch of things about why you like it, and what I'm hearing is you love the stilted language, the cookie cutter <laughs> characters, the bizarre transitions. So, in a way, this is a very, <laughs> this is a book that has a lot of things wrong with it, but they fit together in some sort of way that simply delights me. Interesting. I had a, I had such an interesting reaction to this book. I started reading it, and the first couple chapters, I was like, well, this is garbage. I do not remember this book being this bad. Uh, and then there's that weird transition you talk about where, because the first two chapters are just straight exposition. It's mm -hmm. an info dump. It's like, welcome to this exciting science fiction world. Let me tell you exactly how it works. Yep. Two chapters of that. Two chapters. Of, you know, and they've, they've got a vehicle for it, right? The vehicle is you've got the young trainees being led through the That's human pretty, factory pretty being thin. lectured to. But it's yeah, but I mean, it's a vehicle. Yeah. Right? You, you have to have a vehicle for your exposition and they've chosen a, a, a trope there. But it's it's a vehicle but it's a vehicle. None of those characters are relevant. Yeah. Not a none, one of them. Not a one of them. None of them come back. Yeah. No, wait, we meet Lenina. Oh, is Lenina in that first Yeah, match? because uh, the director of um, hatcheries and conditioning pats her on the fanny. Oh, God. Yes. Okay. Charming young girl. <laughs> Charming. Oh, <laughs> that's some cringe, too, right there. Well, it's not sexist, though, because... It's ubiquitous, right? Everybody belongs to everybody. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, to, to read that, it, there, there's a cringeworthy moment there. Until, but I mean, as you get into the book, you know, promiscuity is society, right? They're, it's encouraged, absolutely. As if, childhood, you know, they, they have erotic play and children running around in the naked in the playground. Yeah, I. Yeah, if you're gonna if you're gonna create a dystopia, you know, and they do this, I the first thing you want to do is destroy the family unit, and they go right at it hard. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, and I question, I mean, for us reading it, it certainly is a dystopia. But for the people living there, um, with the notable exceptions of who end up being lead characters, I think it actually is a utopia. Well, okay. So, so we're getting into this sooner than I wanted to. But <laughs> well, we can we can pause. But, uh, if no, other... no, you brought it up. Uh, <laughs> here's the thing. So, so I initially hated the the book at the beginning. I didn't like the didn't like the exposition. Didn't like the transition. Uh, we do finally get into ah yes, we're going to explore these ideas through characters and character interaction rather than just like being lectured to. Uh, that's more interesting, but as you say, the characters are pretty one-dimensional uh, by design. By design. But that doesn't let him off the hook. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, and then we get a weird segue into the Savage Reservation, uh, and we shift protagonists for a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then we get a resolution, which is mostly more info dump. But at the time we get back to that second info dump, I f-ing love it. <laughs> I love it. I that second, the last half of that, the last half, the last quarter of the book, maybe, is so good. Is so good. And uh, and I wonder if Huxley is being double subversive here. I mean, because the surface interpretation is he's he's looking at this. This utopia, mm-hmm. which we perceive as a dystopia, because we see elements of our own society reflected in it, uh, the ways in which we have automated and mechanized parts of our society, turn human beings into interchangeable parts. Uh, oh, the horror. Yeah. But then the guy at the end is making so much sense. <laughs> and I'm wondering, was Huxley actually trying to say the first thing? Or was he actually trying to say, yeah, you think this is true, but actually, no, it's good. Uh, and I have led you here, and now here you are. Ha ha. Deal with that. Yeah. I don't know. I can't speak to that. <laughs> he, he wrote Brave New World Revisited, which is a series, a collection of essays about Brave New World. And I have tried to read that a few times, and I failed each time I've undertaken it. It's just too dry. There's, you know, and it's, it's a discourse. It's like an academic paper. Yeah. Um, and it just, it has none of the anything that's in the novel, you know. It's yeah. like reading the Martian Engineer's Handbook. Oh, no. After, yeah. yeah. It, it just, it just, there's, there's no joy there. I think I have that book. I think it's on my shelf somewhere, but I don't think I ever read it. Yeah. Yeah, he's, I attempted to. He's not much of a writer. I remember trying to read The Doors of Perception also. Uh, and yeah, he's... He's not a wordsmith. He just no. isn't. Uh, but he is a guy who had some interesting ideas. So, But coming back to Brave New World, I see, and again, I've, I have a list of dystopian books that I read every yeah. few years, and you know, both this and 1984 on them. And I, I see a lot of parallels between 1984 and this, but they're, they're flip sides of the same coin. Right. In 1984, the party has ultimate power and they maintain mm-hmm. power by acknowledging we're evil and we're fine being evil and we will continue to oppress and grind everyone down because we're evil. Yeah. And this is good. We're fine with it. Yeah. And the result is you have a, a society that functions and you've got characters that tend to do okay and then you've got characters who, you know, they stick out and they get in but, trouble. But 1984 is different than this, and there's a lot more suffering, that, that no one is genuinely happy the way a lot of people right, are. Right, but this is the flip side. I mean, yeah. they, you in um, Brave New World, we've actually, rather than trying to coerce people into behavior, we have engineered people only capable yes. of the desired behavior. 
and you know, at the same, you've still got a, a ruling party, a ruling class, but nobody's complaining, or very, very, very few people are complaining. There's, there's no impetus for any sort of change or revolution. You know, and yeah. even when the savage comes along and tries to stir that up, tries to ignite the flames of revolution, that does not go over well. You know, nobody wants to be liberated. They can't want to be liberated. And this, this, the savage, uh, as he's called in the book, he, um, he's so unsuccessful and so, so wrong in his beliefs, I think. Oh, gosh. Is, it was why I give uh, Huxley possible credit for a, for a double subversion here, because normally, I mean, like Winston Smith, we're supposed to empathize with him and root for him, mm -hmm. and he gets crushed like a bug anyway, and that's the tragedy of 1984. When this guy gets crushed like a bug, it's like, well, duh. Yeah. <laughs> it was inevitable. He yeah. couldn't And not only was it inevitable, escape. it's good. It's good, because he wasn't going to make anybody happier. He was going to drag everyone down to his level of misery. Uh, yeah. Now, he's a bizarre character. He really is. You know, we get... Young lady gets separated while she's in a Savage Reservation. Sidebar. Yeah. The reason Savage Reservations exist is that it's simply not economically viable to take over the land. Correct. They don't care that there are people there. It yeah. doesn't bother them as long as those people stay doing, you know, so they wall in the reservation and they leave the savages alone. They yeah. don't care if it's there. It doesn't matter to them. It's just not profitable to yep. put up a parking lot. <laughs> yeah. But you've got this kid who's raised there. His mother is from the society. She knows literally nothing. Yeah. Um, you know, she knows how to do her technical skill. She knows how to have sex. And that's about the limit of it. Yep. So she can't raise him in any meaningful way. And he's not accepted by the rest of the population. And this is where it gets, I mean, so we've, we've got a nice broken character here, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She teaches him to read, manages to do that. Yep. The only book, literally the only thing she has for him to read is the instruction manual for her job, right? So if he ever found himself on the <laughs> conveyor belt fertilizing embryos, yeah. he'd be right at home. Although someone does gift him later, later, right? Her, her mother has his mother has a favorite boy toy, or I shouldn't say that. There's one native who will truck with her, right? Yeah. Gives him the gift of the complete works of William Shakespeare. So we jump from you know remedial lessons at mom's knee to instruction manual to yeah. the complete works of William Shakespeare, and this is the entirety of his library yeah. up until the point where he's liberated, if that's the right word, by Bernard. He manages to cobble together quite a worldview with nothing but that yeah. one resource. He, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't. I mean, I don't know if you're being sarcastic here, but he, he comes in and one of the things he's, one of the viewpoints I think you could naively think that he presents is a humanistic viewpoint in opposition to the mechanistic viewpoint of the uh, the Huxley society, uh, where these people have sort of their thoughts drummed into them while they're asleep by hypnopedia, mm -hmm. uh, and and they just learn things like you know I can't quote one off the top of my head, but you know soma is good, everyone belongs to everybody else, etc. etc. The and, more the more stitches, the fewer riches. Yeah, but he does the same thing. He doesn't represent a humanistic viewpoint. He just he's just parroting Shakespeare instead of what the party has shoved into his brain. Yeah. And he's parroting it in the exact same way. Somebody says something and it triggers a Shakespeare quote in his brain. And it's like, well, but that's Shakespeare, that's better. 
I don't know that it's better. It doesn't seem better to me. I'm a huge Shakespeare fan, but he doesn't seem to have any insight that goes along with his yeah. quotation. Well, and again, his his there's a puritan puritanical view that he holds about you know what it's supposed to be like between a man and a woman. He didn't get that from Shakespeare. He didn't get that from <laughs> Shakespeare or and his he, mother. <laughs> yeah, I mean, where did this come from? Yeah, you know, and and they acknowledge that there is in fact religion in the savage reservations, uh, and they have. Jesus, and they've also got another god whose name, unfortunately, I can't think of at the moment, but who's, yeah. who's clearly a, a hand-me-down of a tribal deity. Yeah. So where he comes up with this idea of, of monogamy and Puritanism, and, you know, later in the book, when Lenina finally throws herself at him, you know, she becomes an impudent strumpet, you yeah. know, where this yeah. guy is is reacting in ways that are far too fixed and far too worldly to have come from a tome of Shakespeare. Yes. Uh, but also there, he's not a good representative of the alternative viewpoint to this sort of free love, uh, human attachment means nothing, everybody belongs to everybody else, where he's sort of the champion of true connection and and romantic love, except that he's not. He's, he's definitely not, not. Because Lenina is not a person to him. She is an object to be won by striving. And she mm -hmm. goes, no, you don't have to win me. I'm here. Take me. And he's like, no, now you're a whore. Yep. And it's like, dude, oh, it's... <laughs> Yep, whatever it is he's looking for, he he never finds. And he can't. He never will. It's yep. impossible. I, yeah. Well, it's impossible. He doesn't know what it is. He yeah. can't know what it is. And tragically, he is not too good for this world. He's just a dumbass. <laughs> yeah. I don't disagree with that at all. I really don't. <laughs> he completely fails to adapt in any meaningful way. He completely fails to understand what it is he's up against. You're right. He's He is... The same as they are. It's just yeah. he was forged in a different crucible. Yeah. Well, he was forged in a crucible, and they were grown in a yeah. in a loving, nurturous. They make a point. the The director of hatching and conditioning. I have such a hard time remembering DHC. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is telling the new kids during the two chapters of exposition. <laughs> You have been spared emotional strain all your life by engineering, by design. You know, yeah. have yeah. any of you ever had an unfulfilled desire? One kid's like, I once had to wait two weeks to have a woman that I wanted. And he's like, yeah. how did it make you feel? Horrible. <laughs> you know, he's like, absolutely. You've been spared all of that. So, you know, the entire society has the emotional development of an eight-year-old, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. But a society that doesn't need emotional development. So there, you are drawn to broken characters, uh, but I don't think you're particularly drawn to John because he's an idiot. Uh, but there are other broken characters here. So is there is there a broken character here you have a particular affinity for? You know what? I don't care for any of them. Oh no. Um, well, that's that's, that's a seventy five percent true. Bernard is a whiny, snivelly little really brat. Yeah. You know, and the moment things start going right for him. Oh, I actually have a quote here that is everything. His behavior here is we awful go. once he gets Success went power. fizzily to Bernard's head yeah. and in the process completely reconciled him, as any good intoxicant should do, to a world which up till then he had found very unsatisfactory. 
you know, so for a very brief period of time, he's on top of the world and he's just flaunting it. He's yep. not even good at being at belonging. Yeah. Um, and then it gets taken away and he goes right back to being a, a whimpering little he's, pansy. He's you know, I mean, he's, he's awful. There's nothing to like about him. Lenina, there's nothing to like or dislike about. She's not a character, yeah, right? She's, yeah. a, she's a cog in the machine. How about the poet? Whose Bernard's name I can't friend. I can't Her think of his name Is either. It Herbert or something? Oh, bother. Bertram? Uh, I can't remember. Helmholtz. Helmholtz. Helmholtz, okay. Helmholtz. Helmholtz borders on being an interesting character. He does. Um, he approaches it. He, he approaches it. There. Uh, and he's the great brain, right? Yeah. His problem is that he's just a little smarter than he needs to be. And he's an alpha plus. I mean, he yeah. needs to yeah. be smart, but he's just a little smarter than he needs to be. Just smart enough that over the course of a lifetime, and we don't know how old any of these people are, but we'll, mm -hmm. we'll stick him in his 40s because it's mentioned casually in there somewhere. It has dawned on him that there's nothing actually fulfilling about what he's doing and something wants to be fulfilled yeah he borders on being interesting um but then he gets written off into an island where he can watch the storms and become a writer he he doesn't well he gets written off in a sense uh from a book perspective but he's rewarded he's rewarded by he's like yeah. you've graduated you're too good for this world we're going to send you to a better world and where this, there's other people yeah, like you this i love this about this dystopian society is for the people that don't fit the consequence is they get sent away to a place where they can be with people like themselves yeah. who also you know they you're right they get rewarded it's a reward not to fit yeah, and 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 Bernard gets offered the same reward, and he doesn't see it as a reward. He sees it as a punishment, which is speaks to his character. Yep. There's a there's an Asimov short story, which is very much like this, only it's framed completely the opposite. Because if you think about it, that's that's kind of that's kind of every nerd's dream is like I'm too good for this world. Nobody understands me. The system is oppressive. Someone should recognize me and put me in charge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happens in this book to these guys. They don't get put in charge. But um, the guy who is in charge, he's exactly one of these people. He got offered an island and he said, no, I actually prefer to serve humanity and, and try to reinforce the system because I think it's actually good. Yep. Uh, so there's an Asimov short story, which is very much along these themes, but it's, it's flipped completely on its head where this guy sort of... The viewpoint is this guy from the get-go, and he's going through the school, and they're trying to decide. They're going through the sorting hat process. It's like, you don't fit here, you don't fit here, you don't fit here. It's like, but it's not fair. I'm, I'm good at everything. I'm just not particularly good at one specific thing. It's like, yes, because you're special. And so you're going to go to the secret behind-the-scenes thing. And it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, science fiction nerd reward. And here it's flipped on its head. It's completely the opposite. But yep. it's the same idea. Yeah, so... You, you're, you know, I never thought about it this way, but you're right. We switch protagonists partway through. Not mm -hmm. that we really have a strong protagonist at any point. We, we have lenses through which we get to see yeah. events unfold. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was, I didn't, never consciously thought that, you know, because for a while it was all Bernard and then it was all the savage. It's actually, is Bernard our first protagonist? I thought uh, Lenina is our first sort of, she's our first POV character. She is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Bernard is like one of her, you know, side piece, sort of something she's considering. And we actually switch over to his POV, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and we stick with him for a while, but then we yep. switch to the, to the John for a long time. He and John have a similarity in that they're, they both 
do not subscribe to this everyone belongs to everyone philosophy. Yes. Now, Bernard has made some sort of a faux piece with it because he goes every two weeks and participates in the civic orgy, yeah. which, I mean, how could you not love a society that has a <laughs> bi-weekly civic orgy? Nothing but good things going there. But somehow he's made it through, you know, his, his three years of sleep training um, yeah. and his you know, young adulthood as a functioning member of the society and has managed to craft this not promiscuous attitude about sexuality and relationships. Yeah. And that might have actually been fun to explore, but we didn't. I think, I think again, this is a, this is a weakness of Bernard, uh, not, not as a character. I think he's deliberately presented this way, but I also think it's a common nerd trap that he that he rails against a society where he can't have the woman he wants exclusively to himself. But I think as soon as he gets a little bit of power, he's not as invested in that. He could have as many women as he wants, and he avails himself of that, and he enjoys he it. Yes. So it's his, it's his lack of ability to thrive that he's railing at, and not the society or the injustice at all. Uh, he just takes the one for the other. Yeah, there's... I don't think I highlighted it, but there's a quote in there. He's listening to two of his co-workers talk about Lenina. Mm -hmm. You know, you should try her. You know, she's she's wonderfully pneumatic. And by the way, wonderfully pneumatic. Pneumatic. <laughs> pneumatic. Oh, my is, God. <laughs> uh, I guess we're free to fill in the blanks on what, how we interpret that as, as a positive quality. But, you know, and, and the other man who's like a director or supervisor is like, I can't see how it is I haven't had her. I certainly shall at the first opportunity. Yeah. And Bernard's over there sneering at them, you know, treating her like meat. She treats herself like meat. But again, when he's given the opportunity, he jumps into the meat market. He yes. likes this meat idea. You yes. Know? Yeah. Wonderfully pneumatic. Charming. <laughs> Simply charming. It's an amazing book. I'm, I'm glad it exists. I'm glad I read it. I can't help but wonder if these ideas were thrust into the hands of a better writer, uh, what they could make of them. <laughs> Well, I, I like to think that this is, it has to be deliberate. The, uh, and this is, this kind of reminds me of, I don't know, if, if you gave a toddler an erector set and some Lincoln logs and some Legos mm -hmm. um, and some newspaper and they built a little model house. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's got this erratic, you know, even to say it has structure is kind of disingenuous. It's, it's yeah. like it's four or five chunks of very different things just crammed together between two covers. And again, some of the writing, you know, and, and particularly the descriptors are just, you know, you'll have seven comma phrases in a row, and some of it is incorrect grammar. I mean, some yeah. of it is, is simply bad grammar, wouldn't pass a, a 101 class. It's got to be by design. It's got to be. It could be. I mean, and again, I don't know how much credence to give uh, Huxley here. Is he playing, you know, four-dimensional chess, or is he just grasping at something which is just outside of his reach? Uh, and yet his, his ambition is so great that what he does manage to, to put on the page is worthwhile, or whether, or whether he's elaborately constructed this thing to lead us down a particular path where we at first kind of buy in and then reject and then are sucker punched at the end. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I give him all the credence. <laughs> okay. I really do. Because it's, you know, as we're sitting here talking about it, I don't care about the people in this novel. I really don't. And yet I love this novel. I really enjoy it. I really enjoy what it has to say. But I don't, it's not because of the characters in it. Yeah. I'll say this for it. Uh, I love science fiction for the ideas. I think that's what science fiction originally was. 
was a way to to capture just incredible ideas. It's the it's the literature of ideas, and I think contemporary science fiction has sort of taken a turn where it's more like conventional literature, and a lot of that gets left to the side, mm-hmm. and people just sort of you know. They, they borrow a science fiction trope to express whatever particular relationship conundrum they want to deal with. This is a book that is heavy with ideas, and those ideas are fascinating. And it, normally when I read fiction, I just look to read it and enjoy it. And I read nonfiction, it just sets my brain buzzing, and I want to go take <laughs> notes and think about things and do things. And this reads much more like nonfiction to me. Uh, it has that same sort of effect on me. It's just it, It's exciting to read. So just I mean, flipping through my notes here, I highlighted a single word in chapter 11, hmm. patchouli. I'm so disappointed <laughs> that patchouli continues to exist in the future. <laughs> There's a lot of surprises for how well developed the society is that they still have manual birth control. It's like, why did they not deal yeah. with that? Now, the idea of the free Martins, I thought, and again, this is just yeah. fantastic social engineering, right? So something like 70% of... What would have been female are, you know, in the, the last month or so of their uh, embryonic development, they're treated in such a way that they become sterile. Yeah. Um, they unfortunately tend to grow beards on occasion, but <laughs> um, they call them free martins. Yes. You know, but the others that are fertile, they're given Malthusian belts. Malthusian They're Malthusian belts. drills. It's, it's so yeah. wonderfully clumsily 1950s science fiction, Malthusian yeah. belts. <laughs> and I, I mean, you're right. They certainly could have come up with something that was more automated or I don't think that would have been much of a stretch of imagination. But in a way, it's also kind of fun to see it's just an integral part of their life. You know, the fact that everyone belongs to everyone, that you're going to be having sex anytime with anyone, that... It's part of your daily routine that you do. I, I think that's why Huxley does it. Yeah. He wants to make it overt. He, if he just addresses it in the beginning, it's like, yeah, and then they've got, you know, uh, birth control built in from birth. Uh, then it ceases to become an issue. But if everybody goes on every single date wearing their, con- visibly wearing their contraceptives, yep. then, yeah. And talking about them. Yes. You know, like, yeah. Oh, Fanny. Or, no, Fanny was envying Lenina's new Malthusian yes. belt. Yes. You know, hers she had had for Simply Ages. Simply Ages was like three months. Oh, and I love that. The consumerism is engineered into them as well. Yeah. You know, during their, their, what's the word? Sleep training, hypno... Hypnopedia. Hypno, yeah, the hypnopedic training that they go through. Um, part of that is to make them consumers. Yeah. And then they talk about creating new toys. You know, once upon a time, people could play outside with nothing more than a bat and a ball and yes. maybe some rope or a net. So now you can't get a new toy approved unless it uses at least as much equipment as the most complicated toy currently in existence. This is my favorite sentence in the book. Uh, you can't play electromagnetic golf according to the rules of centrifugal bumble puppy. <laughs> <laughs> centrifugal bumble puppy. It's like, and it, you, know, you don't get the definitions of these games, but you know, you just hear from hearing the names of these games that they're wildly complex and involve tons of equipment. Yep. Yeah, it's like, you know, Calvin Ball for dystopia. Centrifugal bumble puppy, if I remember correctly, <laughs> there's, a, there's a column... And you throw a ball, a ball into the top of the column. Inside the column, there's a spinning uh, centrifuge, and there are holes at random spots, so you don't know where the ball is going to pop out. Hmm. So that's part of it, anyway. 
Uh, I did have a couple of other sentences that I highlighted. I, I've, I've kind of been ragging on Huxley's writing a little bit, maybe unfairly, but there are a couple of sentences that I just love. He's talking about a storm and he has thunder in A flat major, which I just love. <laughs> and then this little gem, words can be like x-rays if you use them properly. They'll go through anything. Yes, that is our writer friend our, who feels like he has something, should have something more. Yeah. Oh, and this this little, uh, he's got quite a bit of poetry in here, most of which I hate. But this one hypnopedic uh, jingle, hug me till you drug me, honey. Kiss me till I'm in a coma. But this is a tribute to Soma. Right? Yeah. Which, again, society has gotten together and manufactured the perfect drug, something that gives you everything a drug yeah. user wants with none of the deleterious effects. Yeah, so. yeah. Hug me till you drug me, honey. Kiss me till I'm in a coma. Hug me, honey. Snuggly bunny. Loves as good as Soma. Yeah, that's just, ah, that is spot on. Every once in a while. Yep. I'm trying to find... Just an example of the writing that's so bad it's good <laughs> in the opening paragraphs. Well, this will do. This, this is the opening of the second paragraph, actually. The enormous room on the ground floor faced towards the north. Cold for all the summer beyond the panes, for all the tropical heat of the room itself, a harsh thin light glared through the windows, hungrily seeking some draped lay figure, some pallid shape of academic goose flesh, but finding only the glass and nickel and bleakly shining porcelain of laboratory. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, it's horrible, isn't it? And yet it's, to me at any rate, it's captivating. It is so ham-handed. I mean, this is up there with, it was a dark and stormy night for me. Um, yeah. I just, I just, I just adore that. You adore that. Why do you adore that? I don't know. It doesn't it make any sense to me. How old were you when you first read this book? The first time I read this book was in high school. And at really? the time I was in high school, I did not appreciate it. Interesting. When did you first appreciate it? You know, that was such a logical follow-up question. I can't <laughs> believe I've never thought to ask. I don't know. I don't know why I ever picked it up a second time. Because I remember in high school really struggling with this book. You know, and right now, you know, earlier I talked about chapter three, what a delight chapter three is. Chapter three nearly broke my teenage brain. <laughs> Trying to make it through chapter three was just painful. I remember that being an issue because, you know, we had, it was part of a class and there were quizzes. And if I didn't make it through the chapter, I couldn't, you know, survive the quiz, much less know what came next. But I don't know when I picked it up again. And I don't know what switch had flipped in my brain that, that made me see it very differently. But Interesting. Yeah. I think it was kind of a catalyst moment, though. Whatever it was that drove me to pick that up, and, and I had such a different experience that I, for a period of time, I went back deliberately and revisited things that I had been exposed to in school and not liked. Ah, that's interesting. That's good. I like that. Yeah. I don't think anything else emerged. I don't think I found another gym doing that, but at least I did revisit some things that I wasn't likely to. This is this is my second time reading this book, uh, and it was a complete revelation. I thought I knew this book, and it was a surprise to me on nearly every single page. I was like, <laughs> whoa, wow, what? Good surprise and bad surprise, you know, sort of in yep. turns. Well, bad and then good. Yeah, I, I read it, and I think I just quickly assimilated the sort of, you know, the cultural tropes that we all kind of like, you know, the ranks and the Soma, and dystopia, and sort of mechanistic human society, bad. And that's about as far as I went with that. And I think I read it maybe maybe in grade school. I remember reading... That's 
Fahrenheit this seems 451. Like an awfully early. advanced grade school. Yeah. Well, it wasn't for a class, just on my own. Yeah, I of was course. Reading a lot of science fiction on my own at the time. It was on yeah. the shelf between the robots and the ray guns where nobody was paying attention. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so it probably just a lot of it went over my head. And I just, and I kind of, yeah, never picked it up again, never revisited. And so, yeah, this has been incredible to revisit. So well, good. Yeah. You said earlier you had a ton of questions for me. Did you did you hit all of those? I yeah, what I don't think I did. My big ones were why did you like it and do you still like it? Because mm-hmm. sometimes sometimes you'll choose a book and it's been a long time since you've read it last and you get surprised. Yeah, like, what did I ever uh, see in this trike? Yeah, but this one holds up for you. This one does. Uh, and then do you have? A sort of uh, a mental model of what you think Huxley's intention was in writing this book. You know, I kind of hate to ask that question about books I genuinely enjoy. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. You I don't, don't have want to them that. to be about anything. I just yeah. want to enjoy the experience of reading them. Sure. But he clearly has opinions on what society's role should be and shouldn't be. But I yeah. don't think this book makes clear what those opinions yes! are. Yes, that's why I asked the question. It's like, it's so clearly intentional, but what do you mean? <laughs> I'm not quite smart enough to take away from it what he wanted me to take away from it. Or, or <laughs> he's not quite smart enough to convey what he intended. Yeah, and that's the dilemma for me. I don't know. Is he a genius or a hack? Yeah. I think it's possible he's both. Could be. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'll make yet another <laughs> effort to go through Brave New World Revisited and read some of those essays. Because maybe he lays bare what it is he was trying to accomplish. If only yeah. I could suck it up and plow through it. It's like trying to read The Silmarillion. I mean, it's just, there's no joy to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A book that will never appear on this podcast, I'm assuming. <laughs> not, uh, not by my choice. Lord of the Rings, maybe. The Silmarillion, yeah. not going to happen. All right. Anything else? That's all I got. Yeah, that works for me. Yeah. So what uh, what's up next for us? Good question. We didn't actually talk about this before we started recording. So <laughs> let me throw this out there and see if it works. Uh, a Wrinkle in Time. You know, that's actually one of my contenders for, a, is it? for an upcoming episode. So yeah, I would love to revisit okay, that. Okay, let's do A Wrinkle in Time. A Wrinkle in Time it is. All right. See you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. 